Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Beko and my partner, Hari. Hello. Hello, everybody. It's good to see everybody. Good to see you, Hari. How is everything? Oh, pretty good. Surviving. How about you? Yeah. Good, good. In Houston, in Texas, it started to open up. Um, so how is it down there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, almost every business that I visited um, is is pretty much open. Um, but there are some stores that are still pickup curbside kind of things only. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's slowly, I, I'm seeing it, but, <clears throat> you know, the we're recording this um, June 7th, 7th or 8th? Um, 7th. And, uh, you know, the uh, the interesting thing I saw was this jobs report kind of blew, blew me away with uh, two and a half million jobs as opposed to a seven and a half million loss. Um, so I think, you know, the V-shaped recovery that people were talking about may actually come to fruition, you know, depending on how things go. And I have heard from a lot of people that the reason they haven't gone back to work is that they're making more money on the stimulus checks. So, you know, they're kind of holding off on going back to work right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting. You got the stimulus kind of byproduct of st- uh, the stimulus bill, the effect of that. And then also just the fact that people want to, I mean, the business are starting to open. You can see that in Houston, you can see that in many parts of the country, at least in the U S and I'm sure I know for a fact that in Korea, like things are already been opening and, so we'll see how it goes, but it seems like it seems like we're on our way to recovery. It's just a question of how fast. Yep. Over here in California, we haven't really opened up as much. I mean, slowly we're getting there, but uh, it still takes it's still taking a while. Yeah. Anyway, today we're talking about Disney. Uh, so let's uh, let's get on with our analysis. Before we do that, can you give us the quick disclaimer, please, Ari? Yeah, this is the Value Investor TV podcast. We are a podcast that helps you understand the concepts behind value investing. We are not a uh, financial advisor, nor do we know your specific financial situation. So please consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment decisions. Fantastic. Awesome. As I mentioned, we will talk about Disney in this episode. And, you know, even before this episode, we mentioned Disney quite a bit in our previous episodes as a company that has strong moat, almost indestructible moat we talked about. I think we use words like indestructible, like, you know, the, the widest moat. Anyway, like all these description, all these adjectives to describe how powerful the moat is around Disney. I think we will try to add more color to that, maybe perhaps debunk some of it. Uh, so let's dive right into our analysis. So right off the bat, um, like we always do with our any with our any analysis, we use our checklist. So uh, our checklist allows us to make sure that we cover all the grounds when we talk about a company. And if you would like a copy of our checklist, please email us at info at valueinvestor.org. So the first thing on the checklist is trying to understand the business, right? Overall business, more of a qualitative assessment of the company. So right off the bat, the first question we ask ourselves is, what does the company do? And, you know, you should be able to answer this question without having a long-winded answer. Um, so I'll, ask, I'll turn it over to you, Hari. What does Disney do? So if you don't know that well, you know, <laughs> then you're living under a rock. And 
North Korea maybe, or, yeah, know, wherever. Maybe investing isn't for you, um, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so really, you know, the, I, I think this podcast is going to be a little bit different um, than what we normally do when we go on down the checklist because, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to deviate a little bit um, because I think the 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 educational part of this company is going to be different from what you would, um, you know, than going down the checklist. We go down the checklist a lot, um, and it's very valuable to do so. But sometimes there's an opportunity to uh, dig into certain aspects of a company that I think will help um, help guide your education. Um, and after all, this is a you know, some even it, we even say it in the disclaimer. This is an educational podcast, so um, so. You know, bear that in mind because I'm going to talk about the business, and then I'm going to kind of talk about the moat and potential destructions of the moat um, as we see it through their finances. So, so let's let's get started. Um, you know, Disney operates four different business segments, and people are probably familiar with these um, uh, off the bat. But media networks, um, the parks, uh, and experiences and products. Um, studio entertainment and the direct to consumer and international uh, group. So in the uh, in the media section, they have <clears throat> numerous brands: uh, Disney, ESPN, Freeform, FX, Natural Ge uh, National Geographic, uh, ABC, um, and they do TV production and distribution. Um, they also own half of A and E, the uh, Entertainment Network, Arts and Entertainment Network, now just called A and E. Um, they also own a significant percentage of uh, Hulu, um, and in the last year, they bought Fox, uh, 20th Century Fox, to get their, their various assets. Um, and then they had to sell off the TV stations uh, as a result of that. Um, you know, or they, they were not allowed to acquire those. Um, in the media network section, they have domestic cable networks, so you've probably heard of those. We just talked about Disney, the Disney Channel Disney Junior, Disney XD, they have various channels, Freeform, ESPN, and so on, um, which I was surprised by. They don't actually own 100% of ESPN. They own 80% of it, and 20% is owned by Hearst. Um, so broadcasting is also through the... Um, oh, so in the domestic cable networks, they own between... have subscribers of around 59 to 89 million, depending on the the, uh, the brand. Um ABC also is um, reaches almost 100% of U.S. households, uh, and they make money by ads and affiliate fees. So the affiliate fees is if you're running a cable provider, um, you have to pay the uh, ABC uh, station in order to run it um, there. Um, they also own a bunch of studios, ABC Studios, 20th Century Fox TV, Fox 21 TV stations, um, and they produce the majority of the company and TV programming. Um, and I thought this was really interesting as a kind of a defensive thing, you know, because when we talked about the moat being so impenetrable in the era of streaming, so they have 70 years of production history, four, uh, four seasons. So th the way that they describe um, these as being significant is if they have four seasons or more of a particular TV show. So they have 65 uh, shows that have that are one hour dramas and 40 that are half hour um, comedies. So at least uh, have at least four seasons with those. So thinking about this as a putting this all onto a streaming platform, they have all of this stuff. 
Um, and in addition to that, <clears throat> the A&E network owns, uh, they own 50% of which they have history, lifetime, lifetime movie network, uh, and 50% of vice, uh, as part of that. Um, so, you know, that was, that was the media side of the house. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the parks, um, and, uh, you know, the theme parks are in Florida, Walt Disney World, Disneyland in California, Disneyland Paris. Then they own about 40% of Hong Kong and 43% of Shanghai Disney. And then they license to Tokyo uh, Disney Resort. Um, in addition, they have licensing deals with uh, for consumer goods. Uh, and then they sell branded merchandise uh, as well in the Disney stores. Um, I think there are over 200 Disney stores around the country. Um and and the uh, the revenue comes from theme park admissions, park merchandise and beverages, uh, resorts and vacation merchandising, and leasing of parks. So I'm I, the reason I'm gonna I'm digging into all of this is that we're actually gonna spend more time on the financial um, side of the house here, and how they break down. And they actually do a very good job of breaking down their various segments, so you can get a clear picture. And I want to kind of dive into that to kind of you know, talk about the moat. Um, so, uh, yeah. go ahead, uh, Becco. You have a question. Yeah. Just, uh, just a clarifying question. So on the very top of that, uh, discussion, you talked about various segments, obviously media being the, the first one you talked about and the second, second segment you talked about was park, the theme parks. Was there a third one or? Yes, there are two more. Um, okay, two more. Yeah, studios. So that's the thing you're probably familiar with from the movies. Uh, Walt Disney uh, Pictures, 20th Century Fox, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, Pixar, Fox Searchlight, and Blue Sky Studios um, are all part of the Disney label. And as you would expect, they make money off of theatrical distribution. So the movie shows up in the theater. Uh, home Entertainment, which is DVD and Blu-ray. And then uh, TV and uh, streaming video on demand. Uh, and then the last section is actually where the streaming ser services come into play. This is branded international TV networks so that they, they have ESPN internationally. Um, they own uh, various other channels as well. And then direct to consumer streaming services, Disney plus ESPN plus um, Hotstar and Hulu. So Hotstar, I believe is in India or one of the other, um, it may be part of the star networks. Uh, so anyway, you know, they, they have a very, very wide breadth and depth to their organization. Uh, and they cover just about every aspect of media, um, through their various brands. So, yeah. Yeah. So just to, just to summarize here. So you talked about the media business, you talked about the park business, studio and streaming. So there are four, there are four segments to Disney umbrella company. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for the, the rundown there. Let's move on to the second question. Uh, I think this will be an interesting one. Uh, does the company have a competitive advantage? Describe them in the categories below. So start off with the first one off the bat, a brand. Does brand have a, does brand play a huge role in the competitive advantage and in them sustaining their business, winning over businesses? So, uh, yes. Next question. 
yeah. So the the answer to that is yes. They are they are definitely a top of mind in just about every aspect of their of every field that you think about, right? So if you're thinking about taking a vacation and you have kids or you know n- not even that young. Uh, you know, Disney is probably one of the easiest places to take your kids. I take my kids there all the time. It's a fantastic, um, fantastic place to vacation because they, you know, the, the thing that people don't really think about is just imagine if you have two kids, you have car seats, you have all this heavy stuff. You know, Disney picks you up from the airport, takes you to the hotel. You can, you know, you don't waste a day in travel on either side because of their bus bus system and everything. You can basically stay at the theme park and not have to bring any equipment or anything with you. You just bring the kids and they hand, they take your luggage to your hotel room. It shows up in your hotel when you get there. Um, you know, it, it, it is a fantastic um, vacation package, right, that they set up for you. Um and the same thing is true about the theme parks. They are very highly differentiated products, right? I can't go and see Cinderella at Universal Studios, right? So if you've got small kids and they want to, they watch all the movies, they see everything. You know, my daughter has seen just about every Disney movie at least 20 times. So, yeah. you know, it, it's a very easy kind of sell for a lot of people, right? When they're planning a vacation, oh, it's a lot of work for me to go somewhere that's not as friendly as Disney. So they, there's a lot of mindshare that they have. Um, movies are the yeah. same way. A Disney movie comes out and they have no problem lining people up. Um, you've probably seen this with Marvel. Um, you know, the Marvel uh, universe has been crushing it for the last 10, 12 years. You know, uh, st- you know they own Star Wars now, Pixar. So it's it's essentially they have a very big mindshare in the entertainment business, right? And that that I think all translates down into their brand mode. Like you hear the word Disney, you know that you're getting a quality product. Um, you're willing to pay more for that product, which is what that moat translates into. Um, so I think it's a pretty pretty easy sell there for me on the the brand. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I think just I just want to kind of mention a couple things that you said that you said there. Brand, you know, obviously is defining. I think one of the most defining feature of this company, really, um, and it, it pervades all all segments of the the business, right? The media, yep. the park, studio, and streaming, all of it. And you also mentioned a couple of things about park specifically that it's so convenient. It's so convenient that you have this all the whole system set up. And so I think we can talk about that a bit more uh, later. But yeah, like you said, kind of the the theme of brand pervades throughout the entire company. Yep. And I think they're they're utilizing, they're leveraging their strength quite well there. Okay. So next question: network effects. So I I don't think that there's any network effects per se here. Um, you know that in the in the the Facebook or eBay sense of the word. Um, they are, they're a strong business because of, you know, the brand. And I don't think that there's any reason that people go to Disney because other people are already at Disney and and so forth, right? There's not more value because in fact, I would like when I go to Disney world for fewer people to be there, right? Because then (laughs) I I don't have to wait in line as much, you know? So, so yeah, that, that kind of uh, mentality, I think, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to Disney. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, switching cost. 
Um, they so they it's interesting that you we bring that up, but they they actually do have some switching cost in that there are people who sign up for their Disney Vacation Club, um, and so it's not f- for the entire business, but <clears throat> essentially it's a timeshare. You pay yearly for this timeshare, and then you can cash in your points to essentially, you know, have a Disney vacation and you don't have to do it every year. You can save up your points and do things like that. So, you know, that's a big component of the park theme park. And as we'll talk about when we look at the finances, you know, that's actually the part where people are, are, um, that's where Disney's making their money right now is, is a lot of that is, com- you know, they're funneling all of these assets into people coming into the theme park, right? Cause if you think about their business, they promote the uh, the movie, right? And then mm-hmm. you go and interact with the characters at the theme park from the movie, right? And and then when you when you've done that that aspect of it, then you go buy the merchandise from the movie, and then you can continue to do this year after year after year, long after the movie has probably stopped earning, you know, big bucks. You're still interacting with this property um, that they've created. It's a pretty, you know, it's a it's a return on capital that is very, very high over the long tail of the, of the property. Right. Whereas if you yeah. look at, you look at, um, adult movies, right. And I'm not talking about pornography. I'm talking about <laughs> movies made for adults. Um, yes. those, those do not have that kind of lengthy lifespan. Right. I mean, I can't think of movies that are drawing people to watch it 20 times a year in, you know, a year after they're made right? That, that doesn't really exist. Maybe there's a couple of movies here and there. But for the most part, you know, that that aspect of the thing is, so there, there's no switching cost per se in going to see another movie or something like that. But there is on the vacation side, the resort side, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I think we can explore that a little bit later. But the aspect, of, I think the, the defining characteristic of Disney movie is that their target audience I think that's something that is kind of overlooked in a lot of the analysis that I find online, which is that, you know, we're talking about a, you know, children's content. And by definition, just because of the consumer behavior of children's, you know, children's, how children's consume media, it's, it's quite different in terms of the life, the lifetime value of, of, of a customer and a lifetime value that, that we can extract from, uh, from a product. Yeah. And, and I, I think even, you you know think about this like your 3 year old doesn't go to disney world by themselves right so if you go to disney world or the 3 year old is the one who goes to disney world it's mom and dad and the older siblings that are also going too right mm-hmm. so you know when you watch a movie for an adult it's you're buying one or two tickets right when you're watching a children's movie you're buying four tickets or more Right. And so that's that's kind of the the there's a kind of a built in effect here that maybe the parent doesn't want to necessarily go see that, but they end up going and seeing it anyway, because it's a um, you know, they have to to supervise their kid. Right. Now, for the most part, adults also enjoy those movies, too, but they may not seek it out if they didn't have the children. Right. So, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Next one is low cost. So anything here? No, I don't think so. Okay. I don't want to waste too much time on that either. So sure. Uh, and then last one is intangible assets. This is kind of getting a little blurry with, you know, you know, stuff we talked about up up at the very top brand. 
any any intangible assets that contributed meaningfully contribute meaningfully and materially to the business here so yeah i i do actually think that they have some fairly significant intangible assets in that um you know disney as a company has a um and you know you can chalk this up to brand you can chalk this up to other things but um, you know, this is a very labor intensive business, right, that they're in, right? These theme parks require tons and tons of people. You know, they have over 200,000 employees that work for Disney. You, but what you see is, and, and these are people that are working for, you know, um, 15 to $20 an hour, $25 an hour, depending on, um, you know, so they have, a, they have fairly significant assets that they deploy, um, because of the brand and the icon that they've created, right? A lot of people just really want to work for for Disney, right? And so that brings a certain level of talent um, to to them that allows them to you know that they essentially have their pick of the the litter, um, you know, in, in this case, right? They have some technical um, things too that I think also create. Um, it's not a significant advantage, I would say, but. Um, you know, they have a lot of um, animation, you know, talent that, you know, other people don't have that you see with Pixar. Pixar has their own software that they use to make stuff. Um, they they share that with Disney, which allows them to create better animation and so forth. Um, you know, and, and they have a higher level of, you know, that that translates into big dollars in the future. Right. Um, and I, I think it's you can't ignore the fact that they have some of the most iconic franchises um, ever made, right? Star Wars, the Marvel universe. Um, and they know how to monetize those things. I mean, think about how much Star Wars was monetized before Disney did it. Right. And they've, they've made, you know, the same number of movies that um, George Lucas made essentially in you know a much shorter period of time now you can argue whether those movies are a lot worse than um you know the original trilogy or whatever but people are still shelling out money to go see it right so um you know they they've definitely captured um they have an intangible asset that is almost impossible to quantify how much it's worth and the the best example i can give you is um you know snow white was made in 1937 i believe Snow White is still generating millions of dollars for Disney, you know, how many years later, right? What is the value of Snow White, you know, if you did a discounted free cash flow for that business, right? It's it's crazy to think about, right? That, you know, this is a film that's almost, you know, 80-something years old at this point and has all of that, you know, capability to, you know, to bring people still to watch it, you know, to still enjoy it and things like that. So how much merchandise do they sell just off of, you know, that one movie alone? So it, it, it's an enormous aspect to, to this company that I, I think is, you know, they have a very, very powerful capture of your mindshare. Now the question is how much do they actually convert that into dollars? Right. 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 Yeah. Before we move on to that question, I just want to comment on that. I think that's, you know, the example that you bring up of Snow White is pretty powerful. And also the example that you bring up in terms of the, the Marvel studio and, and also like the Pixar and the underlying technology that's behind, behind all of this creation of, of, you know, animation. That's something that is totally, you know, we can, we can certainly put them in the category of intangible assets. You know, 
through which they exert you know competitive advantage over others i i certainly think that yeah pointing those out is a is a is a salient point there but to your to your point though we need to think about how they translate into you know how how they how, how these things translate into dollars uh, so let's let's move on to uh, subsequent questions. Um, this one is really about you know we just listed out competitive advantage. We need to talk about durability of them. I think we, you know you touched on a couple of them already when you were when you talked about brand and so on and so forth. But give us give us some more color on the durability of their competitive advantage. <clears throat> well, you know I, I do think that they have a very powerful advantage, right? I I mean it, it is because of the the where they play in the space of entertainment, right? Um, and because they've captured so much mindshare, I think it's hard for them to lose it, right? Um, I think the fact that they have these cable networks and things like that, though, is where I really start to question the business model, right? So if you're making money off of 90 million subscribers who are paying, paying you $5 um a month or $6 a month for ESPN or $4 a month for Disney. And, you know, you're, you're collecting, tw- you know, 20 to $30 a month from people for doing nothing. Right. Right. You may not, they may not even be watching it. They may have subscribed to your cable package for some other reason. Right. But you're able to sell this to cable companies with a huge, you know, um, huge, basically markup. Right. But the the real problem is, is that as we've seen, and I, I think, you know, especially people in their 20s now, they never sign up for a cable package. They're buying Netflix, Hulu, YouTube TV, you know, something, some different combination of things. And, you know, Disney Plus may be one of those. It may not be one of those. But, um, you know, we're we're basically recreating the cable package just with streaming services. And, you know, the, the real challenge that I think for, for Disney as a company is what is going to happen with um, with their business, right? When, you know, when you consider how much of their business comes from these media, the media division, how long before that subscriber, you know, iceberg starts melting to the point where it, you know, falls apart, right? So the, the core brands and things like that are always going to be solid, but I, I am not, that's the part about this where I am not as clear, right? As the media networks and things like that, their business model is being disrupted, not because of the a failure of their product, but because of the general trends of, you know, of the industry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that makes a lot of sense. But just to just to kind of go back to the harp on this question again, durability of the competitive advantage, just to make sure that we cover this, cover this point um, correctly, the competitive advantage itself, the stuff that you mentioned earlier on, right, the brand, the intangible assets they still exist but this now we're kind of kind of looking at this through the lens of business model and you're questioning the the business model and how they're utilizing this these competitive competitive advantages and i think the point that you bring up about about almost cannibalizing their own business with the launch of their you know launch of hulu and disney plus and espn plus and the whole tectonic shift happening in this industry with everyone, you know, moving over to subscription, uh, streaming and sh- streaming services instead of, instead of cable, you know, it's a, it's a, it's obviously a very disruptive thing to the industry. Um, and 
I guess the question is, this is going to happen. The question is, how much of that value can this need capture, right? In this new business model, in this new paradigm of delivering content, how much value can they capture? Right? That, I think that's the question. Well, and so I, I think that's kind of what we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about for this. the rest of this episode is this is more of a thought experiment to me than anything. Because to be honest with you, I mean, we'll, we can talk about valuation, but I don't think it's very interesting, right? But when you look at the the businesses here, a lot of companies have gone to this streaming model with the intent that they're going to capture tons and tons of um you know, tons and tons of mindshare, right? But then they for, fail to understand that this has now become a capital-intensive business, right? And so think about other capital-intensive businesses like, you know, the classic example that Charlie Munger talks about is, you know, your um, construction renting, you know, rental service, right? And so you you buy cranes and you buy all of these things and then you rent them out to people, well, yeah, you generate tons of revenue, right? But nobody wants an old construction crane, right? They want the new model. So you end up having to replenish your supply of stock and having to repair it and having to keep it in good shape eventually creates, you know, your capital expenditure wipes out any of your earnings that you're going to generate, right? So now what, what I, I am generating $30 per subscriber f for the cable package. And now I'm getting $7 a month for that same person on Disney plus, right? Well, I mean, the math is just not going to work out right at the end of the day. So, you know, you have to, if, in order to keep the exam, you know, the same amount of revenue, you're going to have to capture the same amount of revenue, you know, in whatever business model you're doing. Right. And you, when you think about it, you release a movie in the theaters and, you know, it generates a billion dollars, right? Well, when we actually get down into the the studio business and things like that, that's a small percentage of their revenue relative to the the parks and the the media business, right? And so, you know, this idea that yes, they're they have best movie studios and they have all of these things, it it doesn't translate necessarily if the business model is going to cut off your nose to spite your face. Right. That's that's effectively what's what's going to happen in the long term. Right. Is that you're not going to sign up 300 million subscribers in the U.S. because there's 350 million people in the U.S. Right. So. Yeah. So effectively, like the the, the average selling price effectively. And we're just talking about this media and this media segment right now. Right. The. Effectively, the average selling price of their services or their product dropped from 30 bucks to, let's say, seven bucks. Now they have to make up that delta with volume. But the reality is that you're not going to reach that many people because there's only so many people that are consuming it already. They're already that that big. But I think we, we kind of maybe want to cast this against Netflix. And we talked about this a lot in Netflix, Netflix uh, podcast. If you haven't if you haven't listened to it, please check it out. In Netflix episode, we talked about how they are basically forking over fortunes to to create these original contents, right? And I mean, this is kind of going back to the the target audience here, right? At least in Disney, if you you know already a lot of these products are have been made. You you mentioned a great great example, 1937 when Snow White was made. 
uh, Disney is able to still continue to milk this product as long as as long as we exist. But like in the case of Netflix, well, you create an original product that costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Are they going to be are we going to be watching this show 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road? Right. Probably not. Yeah. And I, I and I think there's the the reason that Disney can survive that is that they can make a movie and then make up their money on merchandising and parks. Right. Kids are going to want to buy toys and Lego branded things, you know, from Disney. They're going to want to buy, you know, surrounding the surrounding ecosystem. And so they could Disney could essentially give the movie away at cost and use the long tail of the profits to, you know, to generate it. How does Netflix do that in their model? Well, I don't think they can, right? They don't have that, you know, I mean, yes, some people are buying Stranger Things t-shirts and things like that, but for the most part, that's not where they're going to make their money long-term, right? Is they're making their money purely off the subscription fees. And, and the problem is, is that if Netflix stops making movies or stops making TV shows, well, then people stop subscribing, right? Or the value of the subscription drops significantly. So, you know, so Disney has a has a has kind of an interesting setup in that they can monetize different aspects of the business. And in the second half of the podcast or in part two of Disney, we'll actually go down into the finances and look at it. Right. But when we're we're still thinking about this from the thought experiment side, is that if you know, almost a third of their revenue is coming from the media side of the house. And that is going to be shifting, right, away as cable subscription packages die, right? And it's going to take a long time. It won't be tomorrow. It'll be five years from now that, you know, but the cord cutting is is accelerating, I think, um, yeah. as, as it goes on. And so where does, how do they capture the rest of that revenue? And can they capture the rest of that revenue mm-hmm. it is to me the real question. Yeah, that makes sense. And and just to just one last point on that, it, it's it would be even more perilous to the company if they didn't do anything and set back. Right. Right. I I think I think obviously when you pit Disney with someone like Netflix, for example, or Amazon Prime, for example, they have a huge advantage because of all the things we mentioned: the brand, the original content that still people continue to enjoy today. All those things definitely help Disney, but at the same time, we have to think about distribution. Like the distribution model is completely being disrupted currently. And so how is Disney going to handle in this new age of streaming business? You know, they can't just like continue to stick with their old business model. They need to do something about this, right? And now the question for us as an investor is, okay, what is that going to mean in terms of valuation, right? What is that going to mean for, you know, by putting a dollar, what is that going to be in terms of return on equity, return on capital invested? Well, so, I mean, as we're, you know, we're, we are obviously not Bob Iger and we are not the ones running Disney, right? But, you know, there's different ways to think about this, right? You could produce the content and then give it to Amazon Prime, give it to Netflix, which, I mean, they put a lot of Marvel content on on Netflix when they didn't have their own uh, streaming service, Right. And the idea was that it could be potentially higher margins for them, right? But then eventually Netflix gains the power 
over the the content distribution. So they wanted to be part of this model of we'll distribute our own content, pull it off of Netflix, pull it off of any other service. And that it only the only place you can find Disney stuff is on Disney. And that's why they went after Fox is, you know, they expand the, um, you know, the the ecosystem by buying up Fox's assets, of, you know, worth $70 billion, according to Disney, you know, but then how do you monetize those assets? Right. And, and that's, that's ultimately the problem with, with any of this is, can you even monetize it to make it worthwhile? Right. That, mm-hmm. you know, if I, it, 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 in the model where people go to the theater to watch a movie, right. They are paying with spending money with their wallet and saying what I'm interested in watching. Right. In this model, you don't actually know what made them subscribe, right? So you don't have the granularity of, you know, it, it's the old story that a lot of people were subscribing to Netflix and all they watched was Friends reruns, right? And so, you know, when when those things go away, can Disney Plus, you know, make it worth your while to stay on their their platform, right? And can it can they make it interesting enough for you to stay stick around, or are you going to have people that are just going to move from one service to another. Right. And yeah. and I think that's kind of where this, there's a lot of unknowns here in this, in this setup, because I think Disney wanted to control the environment and maybe the answer is that they, they monetize it on the parks, the merchandise, et cetera. And maybe that'll work out. You know, I mean, there's plenty of star Wars crap that people buy and Disney stuff and things like that. So maybe it does work out for them that way, but it's going to be a big chunk of their revenue. A third of their revenue is coming from the media arm, which won't go away completely, but it's going to get less and less over time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, just to, I know we have to go down the checklist, but I think this is really valuable discussion here. One of the other things I want to talk about is the control who controls supply and who controls the demand. And if we think about this model for a little bit, like take for example, Amazon, right? Amazon is, has been a master at controlling the demand, right? Users go on, I'm, I'm just talking about, I'm just talking about the, their, their e-commerce platform, right? All of us, I think majority of us have some kind of prime membership and you go on and, and buy it and it's so convenient. You can just search for item, whatever item you want and it's just a click away. So they have been they've been really relentlessly going after controlling the demand and then supply just kind of fell into its place because you're able to control the demand like when we talk about netflix and 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 what and what disney is doing in this kind of in this kind of spectrum of controlling supply and controlling demand disney is attempting to do both right they have the content which is the supply side and then they also want to control the demand using their platform like Disney Plus and e, you know ESPN Plus they want to control the entire chain and i think you know Netflix originally started off at originally started off with controlling the demand and now inching over the other way Disney started what started off with content supply side and then moving on to the demand side so it's like you know clash of titans but they're going on the they're going kind of opposite direction which is interesting to kind of think about. Well, and I, I think the the thing about it is they're not direct competitors in the same way that most people think, right? There are plenty of people who have Disney Plus and Netflix. And so they, they can coexist in this world, but 
you know, the, the problem with the entire business model of this is a monthly fee. I can I can easily switch between things if I need to. Netflix hasn't proven that they can maintain a, you know, sustain a profit over a long period of time, right? And I think that they overpaid for a lot of content over a long period of time and eventually created, you know, upped the ante on terms of cost to actually produce things, right? Whereas before costs were tightly controlled, you had, you know, you had to control things, otherwise you're you'd run out of money, right? And they just started throwing tons of money at things you know, in order to make a higher quality product, which is is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but it it does create a problem in that, <clears throat> you know, we are living in an inflationary time, right? Money is cheap. Debt is cheap. It creates, you know, people throw money into things to create more, you know, you know, because things become relatively cheap, they they spend more money on stuff. I don't know that that'll last forever, right? I mean, production costs can't continue to increase faster than inflation forever, right? At some point, then something will have to give because people will either stop paying for it because Netflix will become too expensive and they can't afford it, or, you know, the, you know, there will be a crash and, you know, the people who will survive that, I think, will be Disney because Disney is better, you know, suited for this because they have other avenues of, you know, they can sit and wait it out. Um, and because they control so much of the media landscape, you know, they can do that successfully. And like, if you want to work in Hollywood, you're going to have to go through Disney at some point, right? Um, you know, at some level. So I do think that there's a, there is a component of this that, you know, you can't really, you know, get away from in, in the Disney, the world, but. Yeah. Um, we talked extensively about this. Um, so why don't we. Why don't we just, you know, just for the discipline, sake of discipline of going through the checklist, let's just fire off a couple of questions and then you can answer in a very short, short burst. Does that sound okay? Yep. Okay. So we left off at the durability. So moving on to the next question, long-term prospects and runway for growth. Yeah, Are I mean, people I, gonna be consuming? I think we've covered this, you know, as best we can. Um, you know, I, I do think that they're going to be, around for a very long time. Um, and they have the, the mindset to do that. Um, you know, and they have the properties to do that. So I think it shouldn't be a, a problem, but I don't know that they'll be able to grow too quickly. I mean, they're a very large company to begin with. So. Sure. Moving on to the next question. Does the company require a lot of capital reinvestment to maintain its business? Oh yeah. Okay. It's a solid. Yes. Moving um, on to the next question. Do you have any color you want to add? We'll, to we'll that? talk. So we're not going to do the the second half of the checklist in part two. We're going to just talk about finances. So I'll 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 defer that to the when we when we go through the uh, the various financial statements. Okay, great. Moving on to the last question of the of the episode: Does the company have favorable relationships with the following? Any red flags? Again, we're really trying to look for any major red flags that we see across. Uh, these uh, stakeholders, so customers, suppliers, employees, regulators, and community. Anything there? Uh, I mean, you can conceive of something in every one of those categories, you know, with consumers and regulation and things like that. But I, I don't know that it's super important to get into that. Um, I don't think it adds much, you know, to the discussion, really. Okay. Sound, sounds good. Okay. Um 
All right. Well, I think you know we had a kind of long-winded conversation about Disney, but I thought I thought it was a good discussion, good valuable discussion, good thought thought uh, thought experiment. Um, hopefully, you guys can join us for the second episode where we will talk in depth about the finances. All right. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, hope to hope to see you guys in the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.